it is always tough to know exactly where you should kind of start and stop a text for a sermon. Um, this one is connected with uh, what's right in front of it and what's about to come next. And uh, oh well, here we go. Uh, verses 13 through 17. I, see, I don't want to you know, be preaching for an hour, and you don't want me preaching for an hour. So yeah, no amens on that one. All right. Um, <laughs> where was I? Verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered by those who revile your good behavior in Christ, you may, uh, they may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good than if you should, uh, than if it, uh, if that should be God's will, than by doing evil. And apparently, not only can I not speak today, I cannot read. So uh, it might be a long morning. Hopefully not. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, we are your sheep the ones for whom you laid down your life, only to take it back up again. Your sheep, who have heard your voice and who follow you. This morning we ask that you would tend to your sheep. Feed us and guide us by your word. And this we ask because you have loved us and love us still. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> <clears throat> My allergies were not bothering me until 10.30, so <clears throat> way to go. Uh, I, I kind of noted not too long ago, I think, uh, that uh, one of my children now goes to bed a little later than they used to, and in fact, after their mother goes to bed. And so sometimes what we do is we watch things together. One of the things that we watched recently was the movie Road to Perdition. It's been a while since I'd seen that one. And uh, I don't want to give, I don't care about the plot line, but the, the reality of the movie is essentially of all of these bad things happening to a man who was wicked. But there's still some good within him, and he does everything that he does in order to save his, the remaining member of his family, his young son. And so as we're, we're kind of watching this and we're seeing... Um, Evil things happening to evil people. My child kind of mentions the fact that, or not the fact, but, uh, you know, it's good to be good so that bad things don't happen to you. And I said, oh, my child. <laughs> Something like that. Sometimes we can do the right thing, but evil still finds us. And I shared a couple stories, and one of the ones I shared with them is um, a friend of mine uh, named David Abrami, who um, was helping out a friend in need. 
a friend who had served in the military and had come back from war and was really having a hard time. And so David and his roommate invited this man to spend some time with them and uh, hopefully to encourage him and help him get back on his feet. And um, the next thing the rest of us knew, they were in the headlines because that man had killed them and had taken his own life. David was trying to do a good thing, and a bad thing was done in return to him. It's even more distressing when you're watching a TV show with ripped from the headlines, and you realize that they're showing the murder of your friend. That was a little tough. So sometimes bad things happen to people who are doing good. Our big idea this morning is that we can be confident in affliction knowing that Jesus is Lord. And one of the words that uh, is frequent throughout this passage is that word fear in a variety of forms. And so one of the things that's going to flow through what we're going to hear is fear not. <laughs> there were a response to that. Fear not. Suffering brings blessing in Christ the Lord. Peter has been speaking about God's blessing upon those who turn from evil and who do good. The one who seeks good or who is zealous for good. And the two blessings that Peter has brought up from the Psalm 34 are that God sees what happens to you and that God hears your cries. And so when you do suffer, God is not ignorant of this, but God is about to act. He doesn't just see and go, oh, well, that's too bad. He sees and begins to act. And so now Peter here is about to apply this. He kind of makes a proverbial sort of statement as opposed to an absolute kind of statement here when he says who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good in other words embrace that which is good seek that which is good don't worry about whether or not people are going to harm you because generally speaking people will not harm you for trying to do good and this is a reminder to us, or I want to provide a reminder to us, that the grace of God is what makes us zealous for what is good. It is the grace of God which has appeared in Jesus Christ, who has not only redeemed us, but it also gives us this desire, this zeal to live good and holy lives, just as uh, we are, I read from Titus chapter 2 earlier in the service, <coughs> for our assurance of pardon. People who are living quiet and godly lives typically aren't the ones who are looking to rock any boats. But sometimes the goodness that is done can provoke the wicked. There's a proverbial saying that uh, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. And so the same deed that could soften the heart of one sinner to hear the message of Jesus Christ can often harden the heart of another sinner that hates Jesus Christ to bring persecution upon the one who reveals their own wickedness. We see this happening far too often. So Peter reminds them that 
though generally no one will harm you if you happen to suffer for righteousness righteousness sake you will be blessed this morning i prayed for our brothers and sisters in indonesia who are right now in many ways suffering for doing what is right who are suffering for righteousness sake and they are blessed We don't think of them usually as blessed, but nonetheless, they are. What's happening here is that it is not suffering that we seek, but suffering often finds us at the hands of the wicked. As we read through Genesis 4, I hope you realized a few things as you listened, that one, Abel was zealous for good. Abel, by faith, as we, as we see in the Hall of Faith in, in Hebrews 11, was offering right sacrifices. By faith, Abraham was accepted by God. By faith, Abraham was, uh, not Abraham, Abel, rather, was walking with God. But his brother, Cain, who apparently did not believe, was not just angry at God because he had not received the acceptance that he wanted for his offering, but he was mad at his brother who had been accepted for his offering. And so he killed his brother. Abel, when he was offering these things, was not seeking to provoke his brother. He was not seeking to, uh, you know, one-up his brother, anything like that. He was simply seeking to please God, and his desire to please God resulted in his brother taking his life. His blood, as that text notes, cried out, cried out for justice uh, with regard to his brother Cain. Peter, back to this text, believes and applies Jesus' teaching that we also read from Matthew chapter 5, that when we are persecuted, just as Abel was persecuted, because that's what it was, when we are persecuted, we are blessed. Now, what's interesting is that there's no verb in Peter's account here. It's understood, it's implied, it's just should kind of could kind of read, when you suffer for righteousness' sake, blessed. So we're almost for emphasis. Because it turns everything upside down. Because what we don't feel blessed, do we? When someone mistreats us, I, I don't think there's any of us that says, yay! I'm so excited. They hit me. They said bad things about me. We consider ourselves instead to be cursed, not blessed. Because from a worldly perspective, we are. Something bad has happened to us. But from God's perspective, something good seems to have happened. Because we're now identified with Jesus Christ, who himself 
suffered injustice, as we've seen repeatedly throughout this letter, and we're going to see some more in this letter of Peter's, repeatedly suffered injustice for doing righteousness, for doing good. And so we find that our union with Christ is revealed in the, in the fact of persecution for His sake. And so it's counterintuitive that this is blessing. That our blessing is the fact that we are united to Jesus, who, as I said, was persecuted without just cause. But that was not where it ended for Jesus, because Jesus prevailed, Jesus was exalted, Jesus is Lord. And so, not only are we united with Jesus in His suffering, but we're also united with Jesus in His being seated in the heavenly places at the right hand of the Father. And so our blessing comes not just from the cross that we experience, but also the crown that we experience because we are united to Jesus Christ. And so we don't need to fear persecution. We don't seek it. But when it comes, we are to remind ourselves of the promises of the gospel that in fact we are blessed, not cursed, we experience this. And so fear, <coughs> fear receives suffering, particularly persecution, as misery. But faith in Christ, to whom we're united, turns our suffering into blessing. So let's continue thinking that through. Fear not. Share your hope in Christ, the Lord. You see, our tendency in persecution is to be afraid or to be troubled, distressed, as this text talks about. Don't be distressed. Why does he say this? Because sheep are easily distressed. <laughs> it doesn't take much to frighten a sheep. And we are like sheep. Peter knows this firsthand because it was a slave girl who frightened him in the courtyard by the fire, saying, aren't you one of his disciples? Not me. Uh-uh, not me. So Peter knows firsthand how easily we can become distressed or troubled in, in the face of possible persecution. How Peter in that moment did not align himself with Jesus, but rather distanced himself from Jesus. And that is our temptation within the flesh. The church is being persecuted. I will distance myself from this, lest it fall upon me. I'll go into hiding. I'll deny him, but not really mean it, I think. And so Peter is calling upon them and upon us as well to resist this fleshly response. But we, res we resist it based upon the grace of God that has been given to us. And he does something amazing in a sense. He alludes to a passage in Isaiah 8. In Isaiah 8, verse 13, it says, But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. 
Okay? And right before it, it says, don't fear what those other people fear. And so Peter takes this and he says, in your hearts, you know, don't fear, don't be troubled. In your hearts, rather, honor Christ the Lord as holy. It's probably not the best translation, but they're keeping uh, the the translators of the ESV are keeping it um, and and keeping yeah, keeping it and keeping yeah, keeping it similar to how they've translated Isaiah eight. Okay, because that that is what Peter is doing. Consecrate or set apart Christ Jesus as Lord is really the idea. But what we're seeing here, if we have ears to hear, is that Christ. Jesus is Yahweh the Lord. He has substituted Christ for Yahweh the Lord of hosts. Peter, okay, some people will try and tell you that the church didn't believe that Jesus was God until centuries later. Uh uh-uh. uh. Here, right here, Peter is saying that Jesus is Yahweh is Jehovah. Peter had a high Christology. He understood the greatness and grandeur of the eternal Son who took on flesh and bone. It was not something the church made up later on, but it is something that Peter held dear. And he says, this is the one that you are to fear. He is the one that you are to dread, so to speak. Not the people who seek to undo you in their wickedness. Reflecting what we see in Luke 12, Jesus says to them, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. That sounds pretty bad to us, though, doesn't it? Kill my body. Sign me up. No, we hesitate at that, and rightfully. But I will, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. God Himself. He is the one that we should fear. What do you fear? That's an important question. At the gym this week, I was listening to Rush. It's not often that I gain my wisdom from rock bands. But there's this line in the, in the song, um, The Weapon. And the things that we fear are a weapon to be held against us. If others know what you fear, they can then use those things as leverage against you. A weapon to get what they want. And so the world often uses the fear of persecution, whatever form it might take, the loss of your property, the loss of your life, something in between. Sometimes uh, just the being called a name can be uh, fearful enough for the most timid of us. But they use that as a weapon to compel compliance with their desires. Jesus says... Don't fear them. Don't let them use those piddly fears against you. Remember, there's something much greater to be afraid of, 
And you don't need to be afraid of it because I have borne your sins. So trust me, it will be okay. We see an example of this. (coughs) Excuse me, lost track of myself. The fear of man, the fear of the loss of these lesser earthly things is only expelled by seeing Jesus himself as almighty and as loving. As personally vested in your well-being. Personally committed to your well-being. And when you understand that this God who has all power is also for you, then you need not fear those who threaten you. You need not fear their threats either. And so Peter kind of continues here, if Christ is Lord, and He is, we are always prepared to make a defense. He brings up legal terminology. It's a word that transliterated would come across as apology, and we usually think of it as an apology as, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, we saw a really bad example this week with uh, a red-headed lady apologizing about something rather poorly. That's not what this is about. This is a word of defense. This is a, the, the word of defense uh, before the judge or the prosecutor. And in those days, there was, you know, you didn't have a lawyer to defend you. You defended yourself. We see this in Acts 25, for instance, when, when Peter, uh, sorry, Paul, uh, has to make a defense for himself. Okay? We, we don't defend ourselves. But rather, what we see is we're called to defend the hope that is in us. We are called to defend the gospel as the motivation for why we do the things we do. And so we see Polycarp, the first extra-biblical martyr of the church, the bishop of Smyrna, or elder of Smyrna, which is near where Paul uh, Peter wrote this letter. <coughs> he said, when the soldiers had come to take him away and bring him uh, eventually to be burned at the stake, he said, Eighty-six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And so he was called upon to renounce Jesus as Lord and to embrace Caesar as Lord, and he said, how can I do such a thing? Jesus has been so good to me for these 86 years. He testified to the hope that he had. Similarly, we see, you know, fast forward, post-World War II, Romania, the communists are in charge, and they're rounding up the Christians. And if you read the book, Tortured for Christ, you can see the testimony of Richard Wormbrand as one of those pastors who was rounded up and tossed into prison and so often testified about the hope that he had even though they were inflicting damage to his body. What does this mean? This means that we are to speak of God as Creator. It means to, that we are to speak of men as sinners. We are to speak of Christ 
as Redeemer. We speak about the Word that became flesh. We speak about the Jesus who obeyed on our behalf. We speak about Him who was crucified in our place. We speak of Jesus who was raised on the third day for our justification. We speak about His ascension into heaven. We speak that He is, ra- that he is seated at God's right hand where He rules and that He is bringing His enemies under His submission. We speak that He will return to deliver His people and judge His enemies. We speak of these things. The hope that we have. But this requires that we know them. This requires that we know the Scriptures. This this requires that we develop that thing that we've talked about a little bit lately, gospel fluency. If you're preaching the gospel to yourself on a regular basis, then you know how to preach the gospel to everyone else. So start to remind yourself regularly of the gospel. From creation through fall to redemption and glorification, remind yourself of these things and you will be ready if the time ever arises to give an answer for the hope you have that produces this zealousness for good living. (coughs) Ah, Excuse me. But here's one of the keys. How you say it. Peter says that we are to to answer, we are to make our defense, not with angry vitriol, like on the internet, okay, but with gentleness and respect. Not in accordance with the works of the flesh, but rather in accordance with the fruit of the Spirit. The flesh wants to angrily judge them for the wickedness they're about to perpetrate upon our poor selves. But the Holy Spirit will work within us so that as we declare the gospel to them, we do it with gentleness (coughs) and respect. Further evidence that the grace of God has appeared and is at work within us. We see this, for instance, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I, Paul, myself, entreat you, okay, not by the authority of Jesus Christ, but by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Did you catch that? Paul is trying to humbly, gently, and meekly implore them because of the meekness and gentleness he receives from Jesus because Jesus himself is meek and gentle. And he imparts that to his people by the power of the Holy Spirit. We see later in 2 Corinthians 12, he says, For the sake of Christ then... I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And so this meekness and gentleness of Jesus comes to us when we're weak. Not when we're trying to 
stir it up in our own strength and power. But when, because of our circumstances, we realize we are weak and have nothing to offer and are depending on Jesus to produce that within us. So, to be zealous for good means that we don't justify the slanderous accusations that they make towards us. And oddly enough, they are put to shame. They might be put to shame in the present as others look and go, why are you mistreating this kind person? Or they may be put to shame ultimately at the great white throne when they stand before Jesus and have to explain why they have done this to the least of Jesus' brothers. How they have done this, in fact, to Jesus himself, as Saul learned on the road to Damascus. Part of what this means is that we have a God who is for us, and therefore no one can stand against us. When Paul writes that in Romans 8.31, he's alluding to Isaiah 50. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. And so Isaiah, in this passage, he's not cowering down in fear. He says, bring it on. Because my God stands with me and I'm not afraid. And so we too, in light of of, uh, uh, Romans 8, are able to say, okay, bring it on. Because God is for me. And you can't stand against me. And so suffering for doing good provides opportunity for us to share the reason for our hope, and that is all summed up in one word, Jesus. Thirdly, fear not. God is in control of your suffering. You see, rather than fear, Peter wants them to trust Christ. He wants them to entrust themselves to God the one whom they've set apart as Lord in their hearts, not just with their words. It is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Why you suffer matters. Another movie I watched with my child was 42. It's a story of Jackie Robinson in the first year that he was in the major leagues. Suffering simply because he was black. Not because he was a criminal. uh, Not because he was uh, making some sort of protest. uh, Just because he played baseball. Somewhere, other people didn't want him to play baseball. Persecution sometimes comes. Peter is referring to this suffering in terms of persecution, but I believe that we can also expand this to any suffering that we experience. It is better that we suffer for doing what is right or without cause 
than because we did something wrong, whether committing a sin or a crime. But in the midst of those two phrases, he puts an even more important phrase upon which this all hinges and hangs together. That if that should be God's will. If suffering should be God's will, it should be for doing good, not for doing evil. But we have to reckon with the fact that if we suffer, it is because it was God's will. That our suffering is part of the will of God. It is not an accident. It is not a mistake. But it is, in fact, something that God has ordained, something that God has permitted to happen. God was not asleep at the wheel, so to speak, when bad things happened to you. But rather, God had ordained them and permitted them for reasons that are known to himself. Think of Job for a moment. Job suffered greatly. I cannot imagine the suffering of Job. What it would be like existentially to be Job. To have all of your children killed in a day. To have all of your possessions basically stolen from you or destroyed in the manner of of a few days. And then if that wasn't enough, now you've got all of these boils I have, I've had boils. I hate having boils. But, but I cannot imagine having a body covered in boils and the discomfort that Job experienced. And all of this was under the sovereignty of God. And all of this happened even though Job never knew why. But when his wife told him, curse God and die, just move on with life, Job, it'll be okay, he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil or calamity? Probably a better translation in that context. So God ordains or permits our suffering for his glory, even though we might not know the reason. Our suffering is not out of his control. It's not accidental. And there's a word, there's a quote from Tim Keller that I say, I shared in Sunday school a few weeks ago, having to do with this very same topic. And it's that just because you can't think of a good reason for this suffering doesn't mean there isn't one. Just because you, with your limited mental faculties and experience, can't sort out a good reason why this bad thing has happened to you, doesn't mean that God can't and hasn't. That's where faith comes in. Trusting that though I do not understand, it will be worked for good. Not that it is good, but it will be worked for good in accordance with God's purposes and plans. Or to sort of paraphrase um, John Newton, if this was unnecessary, it wouldn't have happened. 
all that is necessary for me, God brings into my life. And if it's here, it's not unnecessary. (coughs) So, we see this kind of worked out further with the whole idea, the whole experience that Joseph had. I imagine that when Joseph was in the pit and his brothers were outside of the pit, he wondered, why has this happened to me? And in this case, it probably had to do with his pride and the fact that uh, he kind of gave his brothers the business. And so in that instance, it's possible he was suffering for doing evil. Later on, after he's uh, in Egypt, he's in prison, in the dungeon. And he's probably going, why has this happened to me? You see, and in this case, it's for doing good. Because he resisted the temptations of the succubus, so to speak. Um, The woman who uh, wanted to commit adultery with him. That's how he found himself in that prison. When his brothers came seeking forgiveness, what Joseph said was, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God, on the other hand, meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And so there there were two intentions at work. One was the evil intentions of of uh, of his brothers to destroy him, and the other was the good intention of God to save other people through Joseph. Did Joseph know that when he was in the pit? Did Joseph know that when he was in the dungeon? He didn't know at either time. It wasn't until later on, many decades later, that he knew the truth about why he suffered. Martin Luther notes, It is not the will of God that we seek or even invite calamity. Go thou on in faith and love. If the cross comes, take it up. If it comes not, seek not for it. Let's go back to the wax and the sun. This truth will comfort some people. This truth will harden some others. How do you respond to the truth of providence in the midst of suffering? I want want to remind you briefly that our Jesus, who is in control has walked this road of undeserved suffering and he calls you to pick up your cross and follow him daily. He says to you in places like Romans 8, first comes the cross for you and then comes the crown. You'll share in my glory if you first share in my sufferings. That our Jesus, our great high priest, because He knows what it's like to suffer in the body, because He knows what it's like to suffer in the mind, because He knows these things, He is a faithful great high priest and He is able to give you the mercy and grace that are needed each day. It's not a trust fund where you get it all in advance. 
but it comes every day as you go to the throne of grace and say, I'm hurting. Help me, Jesus. As you cry out. As we, as we saw there, as Peter has already quoted from Psalm 34, he hears those cries. He sees that affliction. And he answers. So suffering comes our way. In a faithless place, sometimes that means suffering comes in the form of persecution. That suffering comes because we try to live honorable lives, not because we're living selfish lives. Suffering comes, and we tend to fear suffering. We fear the pain, we fear the loss, we fear the shame and embarrassment of it. That's what people do. But in Christ, we need not live in fear. If we share in His suffering, we will share as well in His glory. And therefore, we are blessed in Christ. If we share in His suffering, we can share the reason for our hope. Christ and His work for us. In us. Through us. In Christ we know (coughs) that our Savior is also the one who was in control of our circumstances. That He who suffered for us can also be trusted to do right by us. And so, uh, brothers and sisters, you are not on the road to perdition but rather on the road to Bunyan's celestial city, even though it has some hardship. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the hope that you give us in Jesus. And I pray for my brothers and sisters who are suffering right now, who have medical issues or great loss. Both. For the people who are struggling, I ask that you would be sustaining them, that you would be granting them a greater vision of the hope that we have in Christ. That for those of us who are not suffering or not suffering much, that you would be preparing us to suffer well when it happens. That we would have a a clearer understanding of your grace, that we would develop a a clearer understanding of suffering so that when it hits, we know that you're in control and we're able to make a defense. Father, help all of us to keep the gospel central because we live in a world in which uh, we personally drift away from the gospel left to ourselves. Uh, We live in a world which continually tries to shove the gospel into the periphery of life and maybe even in a dark corner where it can be forgotten. And so we ask your help that the gospel would always be central for us at at the forefront of our minds. 
of our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.